Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Pete Martins. He's a solar physicist at the physics department of Montana State University. He is developing with his colleagues 15 programs that use data from NASA Solar Dynamic Observatory and image processing techniques to identify features on the sun's surface that are going to tell us whether we're going to have sunspots, what the activity of the sun is, solar storms, which could wreak havoc on the earth. These are very, very important. All of you need to know that in 2008 and 2009, sunspots disappeared for about two years and the solar activity dropped to a hundred year low. This has a lot of implications on the Earth's weather and climate, and understanding and predicting solar minimums is very important. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome our expert today, Pete Martins. Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. Thank you, Kim. First of all, I want to hear about why you're doing what you're doing. Well, I love doing science. <laughs> That's, uh, I love doing research, and I really like working with graduate students and see them, you know, grow intellectually and uh, scientists. And um, when I was in my teens in the '60s, the race to the moon was going on, and that really inspired me to get into space science. Weather in space seems to be underplayed when it comes to the Earth's climate. What's your experience and expertise? Tell us. I think they actually got it about right. Initially, in the global circulation models for uh, Earth's climate, uh, the sun was totally ignored. The sun was just kept as constant all the time. And our observations over the last couple of decades, since the beginning of the space age, have shown that the sun is remarkably constant in uh, the radiation it sends out. But there's a tiny variation, about one-tenth of a percent, over the solar cycle. And that does have a little bit of an influence on the Earth's climate. And you can actually calculate on the back of an envelope how much that would be. It would, um, so a 0.1% variation in solar output would result in about 0.1 degree Fahrenheit change in global temperature. And then when the global circulation model, models do the same calculation, they actually find double, 0 0.2, uh, 0.2 degrees Fahrenheit. And... The warming we've had in the last century, uh, mostly due to greenhouse gases, is about one degree Fahrenheit. So it, it's a contributor. The, the solar variation is significant, but it's not as big as the man-made variation. Huh. I wonder where you got that from. <laughs> well, as I said, both, both the global circulation models, they, they, they uh, run them now with a varying sun from the observations that, that NASA provides. And then you can see how it influences climate. And then the, just a simple calculation you can do with... Sure. I just want to back up for a minute, and then I want you to talk about your uh -huh. work and your findings. So the climate that you're referring to is coming from models, not necessarily from actual data, but from simulation models. Well, predictions come from models. <laughs> right. I'm more talking about climate. I'm not talking about your work with the sun, and right. we'll get into that. But okay. right now, what you're referring to and the greenhouse gases and all that, I've done about 200 hours of work on everything connected to climate. And in okay. the last two years of my life, I have a very different perspective now than I did two years ago. I'm not saying I'm a physicist. I'm not saying that I can compete or am even in the realm of being able to talk with you. 
But I know that the sun has been drastically left out of the equation, the solar minimums and maximums, and the cycle of climate has been left out of the entire dialogue worldwide on climate. Uh, yeah, it's not much part of the dialogue. I agree on that. And I think, actually, the people that run the climate models, they uh, it's a political mistake to leave that area open because uh, now anyone can step in and say, hey, you're leaving this out, so your models aren't any good. What I learned also was that there was another piece, which is that there's empirical data, and then there's modeling and simulations. And when you don't know what the data is that's being put into the simulations and modeling, you don't know what you're working with, meaning the people that are relying on people that are doing simulations. It's not a very transparent process what those simulations are. That's been my experience of the two years. What I know is that there are at least seven different uh, global circulation models, and they all come out with pretty much the same prediction, that it's going to get warmer in the, in the present century. And they, all of them also are pretty good at uh, uh, simulating or reproducing the climate that we've seen in the last 200 years. Anyway, as far as the solar influence yeah. of global climate models, there's been a a paper in Nature by a colleague of mine, Peter Foucault, who's a solar physicist. I forget, it's Nature or Science. Um, and they, run, they ran the global climate models using a variable sun, so as we think it varied up to four, uh, going back even four centuries ago to the Little Ice Age. And they found that the solar variation in the 17th century that we know from sunspots um, could indeed explain most of what been observed during the Little Ice Age that was in the 17th century Europe. Absolutely. Quite a bit colder. And so, yeah, there is a solar influence. Right. It seems to be a big one in terms of the maximum or minimum. Would you explain to the audience what is a solar minimum? Oh, uh, the sun uh, exhibits sunspots and a lot of activity is, goes parallel with the sunspots, so, such as solar flares, ground mass ejections, etc. And that all that activity has an 11-year cycle. So in 11 years, it grows in, in amplitude and number of sunspots, and then it uh, decays again more slowly and goes to what is called solar minimum when for a short time there is very little activity. And then the cycle starts over again. And uh, it's, a, it's a somewhat irregular cycle. The period is not exactly 11 years. It varies a little bit between, between 10 and 12, and not all sunspot cycles are the same. The amplitude the, varies also from cycle to cycle. But there's a, a basic clock ticking there, with a, which has an 11-year period. Many people say we are in a global cooling period right now, beginning of a global cooling period. Do you agree? No, they're dead wrong. Really? <laughs> Tell us what your view is, what your experience is. Well, as for solar influence, we've had this deep minimum, and um, the the the. Um, but the sun is coming back now. The cycle is uh, restarting. And we don't know yet how strong the cycle is going to be, but there is a cycle, clearly. Um, and you can actually see from the several years that there was very low activity, that there was some climate influence. That, For example, the, the really cold winters they've had in, in Britain yes. probably have to do with that solar uh, activity. At least that's what the models show. So we're getting a turnaround now? Well, the sun is becoming active again, and, and anyway, the influence of the sun isn't that big compared to uh, mostly greenhouse gases. Interesting. 
Very, very interesting how you can say that. I look forward to having you on a panel, an international panel of people from different types of expertise and backgrounds. But talk about your work and what you're doing in the now in terms of the 15 different programs that you've been part of. At actually 16. Um, 16. So it's a big international effort to uh, automate the recognition of events and features that we observe on the sun. And the reason for that is that the this new NASA mission, Solar Dynamics Observatory, uh, produces so many data, so much data, it's impossible to, to analyze those data in the old-fashioned way, which is just looking at the images and have graduate students work on them. We get about from just one of the three instruments on board, we get 90,000 images a day. And that's like uh, one image every second in diff- uh, sorry, every 10 seconds in different, eight different passbands. So it's looking at it's like looking at eight movies in parallel. So in order to recognize features on there, uh, that's just too hard for humans. So we are writing computer codes that do that and then put the data, uh, uh, create a sort of uh, catalog, say, for those data. And it's an international effort. We have five institutions in Europe that are participating and six here in the U.S., and, uh, well, I'm the head of that effort, but, uh, it, for example, in the U.S., we have Harvard and Johns Hopkins, Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, uh, Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, and uh, Montana State collaborating. And tell us what oh, and New Mexico State University, sorry. Oh, wow. Tell us what it's going to do now. What's going to happen from this? Okay, what you get is consistent databases of what is happening and or what has happened on the surface of the sun that we can observe. So you can do a kind of statistical research that was really labor-intensive in the past, and you can do that now fairly easily because all the data have been extracted again already. Um, and so, for example, if you want to look at how the, well, let me give you the most simple example, how sunspots vary over the cycle. We have an automated recognition now, so all you have to do is just, uh, give a couple of commands on your computer, download those data, and make a graph. Well, in the past, since Galileo actually, you know, people have been observing sunspots every day and then carefully putting their observations in notebooks, handwritten until recently. And therefrom, uh, therefrom you, you then reconstruct the data of sunspot as a function of time. And that's how we know this on an 11-year cycle. That has been going on for the last four centuries, at least. The sun's magnetic fields, is it true that it's weakened some, a little bit? It weakened a lot during the last solar minimum. They were so deep and so long, and but now it's coming back. How does it come back? Well, there are sunspots again, and, uh, and with these sunspots, you see active regions and X-rays and extreme ultraviolet, and you see solar flares happening again, some big ones recently. And coronal mass ejections, which are these big ejections from the surface of the sun that can go straight to Earth and then really create havoc. So all, all these activities are now in a rising phase again. What are your concerns about coronal mass ejections and solar flares? Do you have any? Uh, my concerns? Well, um, not so much concerns. I think just like weather, we need to be able to both track them and, if possible, predict them because they have a lot of negative influences on Earth. For example, in what's that, March 89, there was a huge solar flare and coronal mass ejections. 
that came to the earth and actually knocked out the power grid in all of northeast of the U.S. and, and the east coast of Canada. So uh, uh, New York City was without power for a short time. Uh, that's, of course, pretty significant. And what happened was that actually the coronal mass ejection coming from that huge flare uh, induced a small electric field in the power grid that turned out to be a huge voltage because the distances are so large, and that broke down a whole series of power transfer stations, and the whole system collapsed. And, of course, it took a while for the power utilities to accept or even want to consider that that could possibly be the sun that's causing this, uh, but it is. And so now they're interested in predictions of these events so they can prepare for it and uh, take measures to protect their grid. Pete, do you think that it's possible to prepare for this type of activity? There's a lot you can do. For example, uh, spacecraft uh, that have high voltages in them, when they get hit by a CME, that instrument may break down. So what you do, even if you know a big CME is coming, you just power down the voltages temporarily and save your, you know, billion-dollar spacecraft that way. Um, other things is people who are in airplanes going on polar routes, like, for example, if you, when you go from New York to Bombay, you go almost over the pole. Um, when there's a big solar flare, you get enhanced radiation, X-rays, on these polar routes, because that's the part that's open to, to the uh, high-energy particles. And what airlines do when there's a large chance of a big solar flare, they reroute their airplanes to a more subtly route where they're protected from the radiation. And that costs them money, of course, because it's a longer trip and so more fuel. Um, but they have to do that for the safety of the passengers and the pilots. That's pretty profound. I have been from New York to Bombay. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> so that's an interesting route. Yeah, and there's several of them now. There's New York to uh, Hong Kong, I believe, that goes over the pole. And um, from Europe going to Japan, you go almost over the pole, et cetera. So that number of connections is increasing. Do you think that the coronal mass ejection can destroy the grid in the United States? Yeah, if we didn't do anything. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um now that we're having a smart, well, at least they're developing a smart grid now where the, uh, the, the transmissions are constantly monitored, so they'd be better able to shut it down on a short notice, which is good. Not entirely shut it down, but uh, shut down big connections, uh, large-distance connections. What you're describing may be a good thing. The only thing I'm not happy about with the smart grid is it's too much microwave energy in people's homes. Too much. Really? Yep. Uh, I, I didn't, don't know anything about that. Yeah. People are getting sick from them, and a lot of people are fighting those smart grids, the way that they're operating and the way they're being set up. Uh, you're talking about things in the home. I think what, right. what I'm talking about, about is the people who control the delivery to your home. Gotcha. Yeah. Talk a little bit about solar flares. A lot of people are very afraid, and <laughs> there's a lot of propaganda about 2012. Oh, yeah. And not to really get into that, but what would a solar flare do to us on Earth? Uh, well, not much, uh, because we're protected by the atmosphere. So a solar flare sends out high-energy particles and high-energy radiation, up to gamma rays even, um, which in, uh, are really bad for life. But we have the magnetosphere around the Earth, which is a, a, um, a, field, a magnetic field of the Earth itself, 
that deflects those high-energy particles, so they don't make it through the atmosphere. And then the atmosphere of the Earth, in particular the ozone layer, absorbs the high-energy photons. So the X-rays and the UV rays are are uh, absorbed by uh, mo- mostly the ozone layer. That's important. That's why it's important we keep that. Um, uh, now that the ozone layer has weakened over the South Pole and less or so over the North Pole, there is indeed more UV radiation coming through the atmosphere there. And they, you can see it in the southern tip of South America where uh, animals are affected by it. How? Describe it. You get too much UV radiation, uh, eyes can go bad. They get blisters on their eyes. And uh, the DNA uh, in your the cells in your body can be destroyed, so you get you can get defective offspring that way. Where in South America have you heard this? The southern tip of South America. So it would, at the point where Chile and, uh, and Argentina almost reach the South Pole, that's where the ozone layer has been weakened over Antarctica. So they got a little bit more of UV radiation, and they've seen the effect. But the ozone layer is actually recovering at the moment, thanks to the Montreal Protocol. So I think we may dodge this bullet, I hope. I hope so, too. I heard several years back that NASA had discovered, is it the magnetosphere that had a hole in it? I don't know if the exact region, but... Some... Oh, there's an anomaly. There's a yes. weak spot in it, which we call the Southern Atna- uh, South Atlantic Anomaly, SAA, and it's a little bit east of the coast of Brazil. When spacecraft go through that region, they actually experience enhanced solar particles, again, and solar radiation that can uh, interrupt the observations. You have a very different kind of a life, don't you? Different from what? Well, different from the average bear. The kind of projects that you're involved in are intergalactic. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, well, this is the kind of research I like doing. And and, and moreover, there's uh, funding available for it because it has relevance to society. So it's important to know it. So NASA uh, initiated this program, Living with a Star, about 10 years ago which tries to exactly address these issues that uh, where solar variations influence life on Earth in many ways. So we, talk, we talked about climate change, and uh, we, also, well, we also talked about solar flares and uh, variations in the Earth's atmosphere through solar radiation, etc. Now, you're using this technology in these 16 different programs to bring something about with regard to diagnosing or identifying breast cancer. Is oh, that no, yeah. Actually, uh, it's the other way around. Okay. The, the techniques that have been developed for diagnosing breast cancer are similar techniques that I use, actually, in the module I work on myself to detect features on the sun. So what's happened is the medical community has developed methods to look at X-ray images uh, of breasts to detect tumors. And what they do, the doctor, a doctor will look at the at your X-ray and say, okay, you're okay, or there's some concern about this or this in um, in, in 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 the breast. But um, what they do now is the same X-rays are then also analyzed by computer, and the computer will detect. The uh, the diseased uh, uh, parts. Of it. So, 
and if there's a difference between the diagnosis of the doctor and the computer, then there will be some output and the computer basically saying, please look at that again. And it's very important, of course, because if a doctor makes a mistake, that could be a death sentence for a person. Well, so many of them do make mistakes and right. kill so <laughs> many people. Have you heard of breast thermography? Yeah, I think I've read about it. <laughs> it's the safest form to date of identifying if there's any tumors in the breast. Without x-rays. Exactly. Oh, yeah. So do you learn... Extremely accurate. I've been doing it for years. Oh, okay. No x-rays into the breast to find out what's going on. Pretty cool. Then again, you're depending on images. You make a thermal image, right, of the breast. Yeah, but when there's anything there, it's very hot and it shows up in an orange color. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. And we could actually use our same methods to analyze those images as well. So anyway, when we heard about this and we looked at it, and the, the method they used was really clever. This came from Carnegie Mellon University. And we looked at those images and thought, hey, this looks very similar to what the sun looks like in x-rays, <laughs> strangely enough. So maybe we can use the same methodology to analyze solar images. And that's what I've been doing now. The one image, uh, or the one method I work on with um, a colleague of mine here in the computer science department is to try to devise a method, a, um, uh, a recognition module that's trainable. It's much more, we're trying to make it more like a human works because you've got this strange conundrum that, uh, you know, I can have a graduate student and explain them in 10 minutes, okay, these are what sunspots like, uh, look like. Here are images of the sun. Can you look at those, let's say, 500 images and make me a catalog of where and when sunspots appear? And a human can do that right away. Now, when you try to write a, comp uh, a program for a computer to do the same, that that may be a year's work easily to get it right. So there's, clearly we're much cleverer than computers when it comes to image recognition. Um, so what we're trying to do is write a program that works more like the human brain in recognizing Im images. And in particular, you can train it. You give it some examples, and then it looks for things that are similar. And that is based on that method that they used for breast cancer uh, identification. Is it like artificial intelligence almost? Yeah, definitely, yeah. That could be why I found out about you in Ray Kurzweil's newsletter. Oh, okay, yeah. I get, yeah, Ray Kurzweil's quite an interesting man. That's how I had heard about your work. It's a very specific image recognition. And uh, so I've been reading books on how our brain recognizes images, and it's very different from what you would expect the way it is that basically the brain doesn't store images like you would store photographs in, on your computer or something like that. It, it does it in a very different way. It sort of analyzes the image without you even knowing that it's doing it. Uh, it goes uh, unconsciously. And then it stores the major elements of that image. For example, I'm looking at a blue sky here, so my memory will store blue sky, but not every detail of it. So if we can build computer programs that work in a similar way, we hope that we can make the whole process of image recognition much easier and much quicker, especially when you have just one computer program to recognize multiple phenomena on the sun rather than having to write a different program from scratch for every different type of phenomenon. For example, sunspots and flares are very different, and we have two completely different codes that detect them and analyze them. Uh, and now we want to have one code that can do all of it at once. What is the state of our sun right now? We're not in a minimum, you're saying? Yeah, we sort of 
getting out of the minimum, and we've had seen our first sunspots and our first solar flares, and, and there's a, an interesting debate on, going on on how how uh, large this ma- the coming maximum is going to be and when it's going to happen. And well, we'll see because really the predictions of sun- of solar cycle haven't been that good so far. So I'm a bit skeptical about the predictions. I am too. One of the other scientists said that minimums are so important and they can sometimes grind for many years. Do you agree with that? Yeah, that's what we had last time. It doesn't happen frequently. If you look at the data I did, there apparently was a similar minimum in 1913 when sunspots were just gone for a couple of years. And then there was apparently something similar in 1812. And you you do have good data from these days because of the ground-based observation. So it happens maybe once in a century that you get such an extended solar minimum. And then what we know from the Little Ice Age in the 17th century, there were no sunspots for several cycles. So the whole solar cycle went away for for 80 years, I believe. So about seven cycles. That would be scary, wouldn't it? Well, now it would be good for us because it would mean that uh, the, uh, that we got a little bit of cooling from that, so <laughs> we could use that. Uh, but uh, there's no way of predicting whether we're entering a new uh, uh, Maunder minimum. That's what it's called in solar physics, the Maunder minimum after uh, Maunder, who discovered that, that in the data. We may be going that way, but it, I don't think we can predict it at this point. What are your challenges now? Uh, getting funding. <laughs> uh, Getting this project done in time, we have one more year left, and I think we'll do it, but there's, there's still a lot to do. And then find a new project. Uh, and I'm actually looking into more going in the direction of computer science and trying to use the methods that we have developed for the sun and use them in other fields as well for image recognition. I would think that the utility companies would be a funding source for what you're doing. Right, yeah. <laughs> they stand to lose the most, right? Aside from all of society, but for sure them. That's one side that's interested. Also, the airlines are interested because of the polar routes. But most of them are so broke. I don't know how the airlines could help. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they're kind of sitting ducks in a lot of ways. Yeah. But I could see the utilities making this an imperative to invest in. Right. And the other group that's really interested is the military, because solar flares disrupt shortwave radio communications. Right. And that's what they rely on. They want to be able to predict, uh, to to have all clear for saying, okay, there's not going to be a, a big solar flare in the next couple of days when they do their operations, whatever they do. Well, we know the military has unlimited budgets. <laughs> yeah, and, well, Black budgets. quite stingy when it comes to funding science. <laughs> I did a show last year on holographic technology, and there was a gentleman who was seemingly at the front of this field. Mm -hmm. And I said, have you any idea what the military patents are on holographic technology? He had no idea that it was so advanced. It was so far-reaching beyond what he was doing. The military was in possession of something that is so deep level. Uh He had no clue. All you have to do is look at the patent, and that tells you where the military is and what they're invested in. Right. So I think that either the military has things more advanced than what you want to do, and they may not think it's big enough because they already have what they need, or they may want to integrate it into what they have. Right. I would imagine if they get involved in it, you're going to have to have a clearance to do (laughs) that. Oh, right, yeah. I know they're interested in flare prediction. Sure. 
that's a problem that's not been solved yet. Do you think you'll solve it? Uh, actually, yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> we hope to solve it, let's put it that way. You never know. Why do you think there's been so much in the movies and so much talk among groups, different groups of people, about this fear of solar flares? What are people afraid of? I have no idea. I think it's kind of, well, we're living in a time where uh, people are scared of huge disasters anyway because there's so much going on about over which we have no control. Right. It's kind of the end of a civilization sickness. <laughs> like, I think so. Yeah. So the world is coming to an end. That that uh, I don't think it will end through solar flares. <laughs> Let me put it that way. If it were to end through some type of space weather phenomenon, what would you say would make it end or where it was brought to a halt? I, I cannot see any solar event at this point that would put an end to civilization and certainly not to life. Really, uh, unless from the sun shutting off, which is not going to happen. I think that's great news, what you're saying. <laughs> I hope so. Well, <laughs> if I'm shown wrong, then <laughs> you can't call me anyway. <laughs> Blame. <laughs> <laughs> I'll find you in the space particles. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd be very interested to know if you can get the rest of this funding for solar flare prediction. I really think it's important, and if you can get it, we'd love to hear about it, and we'd love for you to comment on the site when it happens. Sure. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us? Um, no, I, well, actually, but I'm more on the personal level, that um, it's been really fun for me the last 10 years working with, with graduate students and, and uh, to a lesser degree with undergraduates and guiding them through their thesis and doing research, and I sort of found, oh, this is what I like. <laughs> It's a blessing, isn't it? Yeah, that's a blessing. It's been very enjoyable. And my students have all done very well, so I'm glad to see that too. Well, I'm glad you're paying it forward and helping people grow and think. We appreciate your work as a research professor at the physics department at Montana State University. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Pete Martins. If you would like to reach him, you can contact him at physics.montana.edu, and his email is martens, M-A-R-T-E-N-S, at physics.montana.edu. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you.